This is MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Lucy Horton. Professor David Nutt wrote in the opening to his book that if you haven't recognised his name, you probably know him as the scientist who got sacked. In 2009, he was fired as the Advisory Council on Misuse of Drugs Chair by the government. He's famous for saying that horse riding is more dangerous than ecstasy and has been championing drugs like ketamine, magic mushrooms and ecstasy to treat mental illness. He's leading the way with some really exciting research. Today, I'm delighted to be sat in his office in Imperial College London to talk to him about this promising and controversial area of discovery. Now, David, I don't know whether you've listened to an MQ Open Mind before, but the way I start all the podcasts is by asking my guests what the one question they'd like answered above all others is about mental health. So what's your one big question you'd like the answer to? Why can't we get governments and the scientific community to take it seriously? Why is it we're always fighting to get funding? Why is it that people don't understand it's the largest cause of disability in the world? Why do they? Why are people blind to that? Why do, why do we have to continually fight our corner when other... Other illnesses, other disorders get swamped with money, so they don't know what to do with it. And we have to mm. be, always be <laughs> when it's so going prevalent. around with a bagging ball. Yeah, when it's, absolutely, when it's so prevalent. So you are the Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College, and you're also the Chair of Drug Science at Org. UK. But what initially sparked your interest in drugs? Why drugs? Well, I'm a, a neuropsychopharmacologist, and that, what that means is that I'm someone who's interested in the effects of drugs on the brain. Uh, I suppose I got interested in drugs uh, when I started being a doctor because actually, in a way, what doctors do is prescribe drugs. And when I started to do my psychiatric training, obviously I I realised there's more to helping people with mental disorders than just prescribing drugs. But really, what doctors can do, what psychiatrists can do, is is really prescribe drugs optimally and appropriately. And that's where our real skill is, and that's where we should be investing... um, a lot of our training for doctors. But also beyond that, I realise that we have very little understanding of what's going on in the brain in relation to these disorders. Certainly when I started doing research, we had no brain imaging tools at all. We, all we had was EEG. Um, what's EEG? Electroencephalography. So we could measure brain waves and we could look at what stages of sleep people are in. But EEG didn't tell us much about what's going on in the brain in relation to disorders like depression and anxiety and schizophrenia. In fact, the only handles we had on what might be going wrong in those disorders was actually the fact that drugs worked and often worked very effectively. And that seemed to me uh, a very useful way of beginning to address the biology of these disorders. If we understood what the drugs did, we might at least then know which systems could be abnormal that were being rectified by the drugs. I heard that when you were at Cambridge, you actually tried lithium yourself when you were testing it. Is this something that you would still advocate today? No, well, I've, take, I've taken an awful lot of drugs as, uh, in experimental circumstances. I actually think it's the right way forward. I think. Mm, why, why do you think that? Well, I think doctors should know what the drugs do and what, what they're about. And it's, it gives you uh, an ability to, to talk with your patients honestly about the fact that you're not frightened of them. You know, a lot of patients are frightened of taking drugs, but if you've taken them, then you can reassure them that, you're, um, that, that you know, they're not as bad as perhaps they're made out by the media. And... Uh, if you've got the confidence in them, then maybe uh, they would have confidence in you. So today your research is looking at psilocybin and 
is looking at how that can treat different mental health problems. So at present, we're researching on the brain mechanisms of addiction and looking at treatments to help people stop uh, using drugs and also mainly to help them stay abstinent. But the one theme that's become very um, sort of popular in the media is this research theme we've developed using um, magic mushrooms, psilocybin. It's this active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Um, we're not entirely sure why the mushrooms make it. I suspect they make it because it deters animals from eating them. There are people that think the mushrooms were put on on the earth by some aliens to help humans grow their brains. So okay. that, that's, a, that's an alternative theory, difficult to test, but not, not, not you couldn't dismiss it completely. But so anyway, we don't know why it's there, but uh, what we do know is it produces profound alterations in brain function. And uh, we also know it's pretty safe. We know sort of a million people have been using it every year. Uh, it was a medicine back in the 1950s and 60s. It was a medicine. Uh, for 50 years, psilocybin has not been researched. Uh, so we decided about 10 years ago, um, one of my postdocs, uh, Robin Carhart-Harris, thought it would be interesting to see what's going on in the brain with these drugs. And we did a series of brain imaging studies using fMRI and also MEG, magnetoencephalography and found it had very profound effects on the brain. And some of those effects looked to us as if they might be helpful in the treatment of depression. Why did you think mm, that could be helpful? Well, we saw that uh, an area of the brain uh, that is involved in depression, uh, which seems to be overactive in depression, called the um, subgenual cingulate cortex, uh, was uh, switched off by psilocybin. And, and we noted that many treatments of depression also switch this part of the brain off. Uh, that includes antidepressant drugs, it includes drugs like ketamine, it includes treatments like deep brain stimulation, it, it even includes placebo. If you get better on placebo, this area of the brain seems to dampen down. So we thought, well, if, uh, if psilocybin dampens it down directly, uh, maybe it would have an antidepressant effect. And we wrote a grant, uh, probably the first grant that the Medical Research Council has funded in psychedelics for 50 years. It was funded. Um, and we did a study, a small study, um, just 12 subjects. But it, we found that psilocybin, basically a single dose uh, of a, a moderate dose, had a, quite a profound antidepressant effect, as, as we'd hoped. In, in the long term, how, how long did you measure them afterwards? So we gave them um, the 25 milligram dose, and then we monitored them for six months afterwards. And we found that the peak effect came on it by five weeks. That was the most significant uh, different from the baseline. So these were people who'd had what we call resistant depression. They'd uh, failed on at least two other drug treatments. They'd all had psychotherapy. Uh, and uh, they all got a bit better. Some got very well. Some people stayed well for months, six months. Others got a bit better and then they slipped back. So it seems like you know there's a, a, an individual variation in the response. Mm. But the fact that some people could be well for many, many months after a single treatment with this drug is actually quite remarkable. And why do you think it's working? Well, we think it's working because in part it dampens down that part of the brain which we think drives depression. Uh, what patients say when we talk to them, they say it's some, sometimes they say it's like a reset, it's like my brain has been reset. I've, we know in depression people get locked into ways of thinking which are quite negative. They have very self-critical thoughts. They often ruminate about things they've done wrong and mistakes they've made. They feel very guilty. They're, in, they're set in a very negative mindset. 
when you're under the influence of psilocybin, when you're actually having the trip, you, you don't have a mindset at all. Your mind becomes completely kind of fragmented and all sorts of uh, different thoughts and ideas and experiences go through your head. You can no longer keep thinking about your depressed mood. And it may be that just that fragmentation for a period of a few hours during the trip, and maybe that's all that's necessary for people to sort of shake themselves out of the depression and then reset themselves in a, in a different uh, way of thinking. Can you tell me about how, what they report? What kind of experiences do they say? And what does it feel like for them? So the experiences they report, are, uh, uh, they come in sort of three different sorts, really, although there's a sort of overlap. Um, so some people have mystical experiences. They feel that they've um, sort of seen something meaningful and different and that's almost kind of religious in context. Others feel that they've seen their problem. Uh, I mean, I remember one man said for the first time he was able to recall his father abusing him and say to him, no, that's it, I'm not going to put up with this anymore, you're no longer going to influence my mind all these years later from that abuse. So he was able to sort of get closure mm. on uh, uh, some of the trauma which had led to his depression. And then the third experience is that people often say that they feel much more connected with other people and with other aspects of life. They sort of, it's as if they've broken out of this internal bubble of depression, this internal sort of rumination, ruminative state and they can see there's more to the world than they could see before, and they feel more connected with the world. Uh, so those, those are the kind of um, processes, and I think they all reflect uh, a reorganization of thinking under the influence of the drug, which then can persist into the, uh, into the normal world for, as I say, months. Um, Did you see so any negative side effects from it? Obviously, that was a great concern to us, that there might be um, problems uh, there's a lot of bad press about these drugs and a lot of concern about the potential harms they could do, although I have to say a lot of those original reports back in the 60s on which the drugs were banned were, were fictitious. But obviously we were concerned and the Ethics Committee was concerned. In fact, the Ethics Committee wouldn't allow us to do a double-blind study until we did what, a safety study. This first study we did was actually just a safety study where we... They said you can give a single dose and you have to Sorry, monitor you're going to have to explain what a double-blind, what you mean by that. So our original plan was to say was to take a group of people and, and randomize them either to the active ingredient, psilocybin, or to a placebo, just to see whether it was the drug that had the mm. impact rather than the, um, but surely the experience of, of being in a therapeutic trial, which is the gold standard way of actually doing a clinical trial. Surely because they have this psychoactive experience to them, the people taking them know that they're on the drug and the people that are on the placebo know that they haven't taken a drug. So how could, how could the placebo really work? Well, that's a very good question. Could, could you, can you ever properly do placebo control when people are having uh, the powerful experiences like they do under um, a psychedelic? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something we have really we wrestled with, and I'm not sure you can do a proper placebo, but you can... You can give them a lot of other stuff. You can give them all the psychotherapy that goes with it because we don't just give people a drug. We don't say, here, go home and take this. When they, they come to the clinic, they're prepared for the dosing. When they have the dosing, there's two therapists with them all the time. And the next day, they have a, a what we call an integration or debriefing session. So there's an enormous amount of care and, and attention they're given, which could be therapeutic in itself. But in terms of adverse effects, no, we had um, we had no serious adverse effects. People seemed to uh, cope with the experience, even the ones that went through um, uh, 
confronting quite unpleasant, quite damaging memories. They, they came out of it thinking that it was a good thing and they felt better for it. But how do you know that's not just a big placebo effect that they think yeah. they're getting? Well, that's a good question. And so what we are planning to do now is another study. We have funding from a, a charity called the, the Alexander Mosley Trust to do a, a controlled trial where we're going to con- compare psilocybin with the, the gold standard antidepressant escitalopram. And both groups will get the same amount of psychotherapy. So then we will know at least whether psilocybin is as good or maybe better than the, the gold standard antidepressant. Sounds exciting. And the studies on ketamine have also shown that there's this positive effect on treating depression. And it's also psychoactive. So is it the same, do we think it's the same thing that's happening in the brain to cause this positive effect? We talked about this brain area which is being turned off. The experiences are not exactly the same. Um, uh, Ketamine and psilocybin work in different parts of the brain. So you can see in these brain scans that different parts of the brain are lighting up? Yes, yes. So ketamine seems to have a very uh, predominantly localised effect in the frontal part of the brain, whereas psilocybin has a much more uh, global impact on brain function. And we think that may be why it uh, produces a, a, a different trip. You know, I mean, there's there's an overlap in all the experience, but they're not identical. People can tell them apart; they know the difference. Uh, people who've tried both, um, the we think that the psilocybin is somehow targeting a brain system which is intimately involved in generating new strategies of thinking and adaptation whereas ketamine we think may be just focusing on an area of the brain which relate perhaps more to mood in itself so what we think with psilocybin is that people come out of this experience thinking differently about the world so that the what used to make them depressed doesn't make them depressed anymore because they can see that that their thinking was wrong it's not just getting rid of the negative mood it's actually helping them reformulate a new way of of dealing with the problems in the world. So people could spend years kind of thinking in these negative cycles mm. and then when they take the drug you think they're able to come out of it with a, a fresh way of thinking. That's like right. you said, that's, resetting the brain. That's somewhere. what we think, yeah, exactly. Mm. That's right, we think. Um, the interesting question, of course, is why doesn't it persist forever? Many people who've taken psychedelics over the, in the, over the past decades have said it does produce long-lasting changes. I mean, many of the people say this was one of the most profound experiences of my life, and they will look back on it. In depression, you know, although some people stayed well for over six months, others did slip back. And I think that tells us that in depression, there's the depressed brain, there's something in the depressed brain that is driving to people to be depressed. Once you've learned to be depressed, it may be that there's a sort of inexorable pressure to reinstate that depressed thinking. Or it may just be that people can't escape from the reality of the world, so that, you know, if, you, if you're being depressed because of your life circumstances, they're not gonna go away necessarily by taking a psychedelic. But at the very least, we can give people a, a window of maybe weeks or months when they can escape from their depression, maybe put in place ways of dealing with it differently. Maybe we have to come back, maybe we people will have to come and have a, a have a, a trip maybe every six months or a year, you know, to, to kind of, again, reset themselves so that they can 
they can function and better. I mean, you know, maybe it's you know you're gonna go away instead of going to Ibiza and dancing for two weeks. You're gonna go to some other place and have your psychedelic experience in a in some kind of therapeutic setting and come back feeling refreshed and 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 better able to deal with the world. I don't know. Those are the kind of models we're we're currently contemplating. Mm. You mentioned that you give people the drug at the same time as giving them psychotherapy. So do you think this approach is the way forward in that it's a combination of both the drug and the therapy or do you think we could treat it with the drug alone? That's a really good question. Currently we believe that the two are important. That's a belief. We don't have proof of that. Um, we think it's these drugs are too powerful to be simply let loose to be used by people without proper guidance without proper support psychotherapeutic support because we know that we're treading a very fine line here if things go wrong we will be vilified there will be an enormous pressure to get rid of this research just like there was 50 years ago mm. you've spoken quite a lot about some of the challenges with researching these illegal drugs can you tell me a bit more about that well this these drugs are illegal um because when they were being widely used in the 1960s recreationally, the governments, particularly the US government, decided that uh, it was changing the way people thought about government and about the establishment and about authorities. You know, LSD, as I said, as I often, is the only drug to be banned because it changed the way people voted. And of course, they, they got banned um, for political reasons. The justification was harm, but the harms were relatively small especially when they're used in medical surroundings. But that ban has persisted for 50 years. This is the anniversary of the ban in 1967. And in that, before 1967, there were 1,000 clinical papers, 40,000 patients were studied. National Institute of Health in America funded 140 grants to research these drugs, particularly LSD. Since then, nothing. So it was being used in a medical sense? They like, were medicines, yeah, mm. absolutely. LSD and psilocybin were both medicines. What were medicines. they being used to? They were being used to treat conditions like depression and addiction and with considerable success. And this is the absurdity of it. They were banned to stop recreational use. That hasn't stopped. <laughs> but the ban has stopped research almost completely. It's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world. 50 years almost no research and I can't imagine the paperwork you must have to get through to do these experiments <laughs> shall I tell you so I tell you the paperwork yes so so the, the depression study which in the end they wouldn't let us do a double-blind study they said we had to do a safety study even though this drug was a medicine for six years psilocybin they say we have to do a safety study safety uh, study meaning it's less people meaning it's a few people and you have to make sure that you know they don't get ill so our study, the main outcome of our depression study was actually to make sure people didn't die. Well, no one died at six months. No one got ill at six months. The, the depression scores were, were a measure of the side effects. They got better. But this is the absurdity of it. This is how the censorship of research has colored people's thinking. People are irrational. People think these drugs must be terrible because otherwise, why would they be banned for 50 years even? And of course, it's all politics. But let me just give you this example. So the, the depression study, we got a three-year grant from the MRC to do this study. 
It took one year and three visits to the Ethics Committee to get permission. And then we had to do a safety study, not a proper control study. But that was the easy bit. The ethics was easy. Getting the drug took 30 months because no one in Britain makes the drug because it's illegal. So we had to find somewhere overseas to make it. Then we had to go through all the paperwork. So it took us 30 months to get the drug. And then it took us another two months to get the government permission to use the drug. So it took 32 of the 36 months of the grant to get to the position where you could actually start the study. And the drug itself, it cost £1,500 per dose. Because, because Because it's treated, you know, psilocybin is treated like plutonium. At every level, someone has to have a special license to hold it and move it. Crazy bureaucracy, which is absurd. I mean, I'm a doctor. I can write a prescription for heroin and go to my pharmacy and get them to prescribe heroin to a patient in pain or in heart failure, just like that. But psilocybin, which is a much, much less dangerous drug, is treated as if it's much more harmful than heroin. We have to have a special special safe to lock the psilocybin up. You can't just go alongside the heroin. Even anyone breaks into a pharmacy, they're going to steal the heroin, not the psilocybin. I'm treated as a drug dealer. You know, I have to be monitored continuously just in case I go down the streets and say, psst, got 50, 100 quid, you want a trip? I mean, it's absurd. But that's the nature of the bureaucracy which is built up around this. I think there's almost a kind of ploy to stop researchers working on these drugs. So I think governments are embarrassed now by the mistakes they've made. What do you think the incentive behind them not wanting it is? Well, they don't want to be proved wrong. I mean, all these, look, how many millions of people have committed suicide in the last 50 years who might have been saved by psilocybin? Well, it's a million a year, isn't it, suicides in the year? You know, so maybe 50 million suicides, in the, say, say 30 million suicides in the last 50 years. If 1% of them could have been saved, you know, then, you know, it's 300,000 deaths. You know, th- these drugs could save, they will save lives. And a gov- I don't think governments want to know they've really screwed up on this. I think they'd rather, th- no one ever researched these drugs ever, so they wouldn't be exposed to the this enormous dishonesty that, that, that these the ban of these drugs actually reflects. So what's the policy that you put in place? Legalise everything? Yeah, well, the policy is very, very important. Actually, there's a consultation going on at present, trying to, to try to see whether there's ways around this this peculiar oppression of research through these for these drugs. Uh, I mean, I, there are a few simple things we could do. Well, I mean, for instance, the government could simply say, well, they could be stored alongside heroin. That would save me vast amounts of money. They could be, they could, you could. If you could change their scheduling from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, that would save enormous amounts of time and cost to, to do research on these drugs. My own view is actually that there's enough evidence for psilocybin, also for cannabis now, for the medicinal value, that they, the government should say, well, they were medicines, let's put them back into medicine, and then let doctors prescribe them. I think, you know, personally, that's what I'd do straight away. Uh, that may be one step too far for this government. But at the very least, we should make them available for medical research without this burden I'm not going to be selling this stuff on the street. I mean, you know, I've got far more important things to do. Right <laughs> You're not a drug dealer. It's good to establish that. Um, but do you think there's a danger that by promoting the positive aspects of these illegal substances, because of course there is an argument that mental health problems and these illegal substances have a relationship, they're linked. Um, well, there is an argument, but it's, it's, a, flawed, it's a completely flawed argument. 
an utterly flawed argument. So the epidemiology shows us that people who use psychedelics have better mental health than those who don't. The epidemiology tells us that prisoners, when they leave prison, the ones who use psychedelics after prison, are less likely to go back into prison. So psychedelic drugs improve mental health and well-being. They don't reduce it. So, the, so, But we have lived this myth for 50 years. We have lived the lies that, that particularly the US government, but our government to some extent are complicit in this, the lies that have been perpetuated. Yes, of course, psychedelics can be bad for some people. They're not good if you've got a propensity to be psychotic. They're probably not good for you. They may bring on a case of psychosis sooner than it would have been brought on otherwise, in the same way as cannabis might. But they don't cause psychosis in the population. They, they don't, they're not associated with an increase in psychotic rates generally. Banning these drugs would, is, is this, would be the same as if we decided to ban morphine for pain control because people use warfarin recreationally. We didn't do that. Why not? Well, we didn't do that because, ah, we all know what pain is, and we know that pain's a bad thing. But we were quite happy to burn psychedelics because we don't care. We didn't care that they treated depression because that's just moral weakness. We didn't care that they treated addiction because that's moral weakness. So the banning of the psychedelics really reflects this whole stigma against mental illness, which has perpetuated since, well, probably the beginnings of time, but certainly since we've sort of had modern Western medicine. So what are your hopes for your research? What are the next steps? Well, my ambition now is to do this proper trial comparing the best um, antidepressant drug with psilocybin. That'll take another two to three years. So that'll be patients who have depression? Correct, that's patients with depression. Uh, My real ambition is to bring back these drugs, psychedelic drugs, into the field of addiction. Addiction is the most poorly served um, of the mental illnesses in terms of therapy. Uh, Mortality rates... uh, from being an addict are are worse than from many cancers. So let's look at the treatments which we have were shown 50 years ago to be effective. So I want to bring that back. I want to do a a proper study to see if we can really impact on addiction with uh, drugs like LSD. Do you think it will be the same reason as to why it's working with depression and addiction? Yeah, I think so. I think think addiction and depression are similar in the sense that within the brain there are processes which are maladaptive. People have got people get locked into ways of thinking. In depression, people are thinking negative thoughts about themselves. In addiction, they're continually focusing on their, their love object, the, the, the drug, the, the, uh, the addictive substance. They, can't dis, they cannot disengage from that. Even if they want to, they can't. Their brain is on an autopilot. You can disrupt that processing. And... Um, and, and show people that, that they can escape from it. They're, not, they're no longer shackled to this way of thinking about the drug. So, you know, let's give it a try. What's there to lose? We haven't stopped the recreational use of these drugs. We never will because people kids know that they're not harmful. And why would we? But we have stopped research. Um, what other mental health conditions do you think? Very interesting OCD. There's one small study of psilocybin for OCD conducted 10 years ago. They, they stopped that because they ran out of money because the cost of doing this research was so huge. Uh, so we're planning to do a, an OCD study as well. Because again, it's, it's the disorders where you have this ingrained repetitive thinking that could potentially be disrupted and, and, and the brain can then be reset to thinking in a more normal way. That's what we hope. A slightly different question, I guess. If you think it can work over all these different conditions, how, how valuable do you think that diagnoses are? Oh, do we? Yeah, is it? Does it mean that you could sort of 
one trip cures everything. Yeah, um, we're not seeing this as the first line treatment. We're seeing this for people who've failed other treatments because there are effective treatments for some people. Yeah, that's uh, an important message to yeah. get out. Absolutely, and we do see people say, you know, that I'm not, I don't want anything other than these drugs. And they say, no, that's wrong. You know, it's, you know, if you can, it's too early to say that they should be first line. I mean, it, you know, they may never be first line, but they should be available second or third line. Um, but the only proviso for that is that if you're on SSRIs to treat OCD or depression, the effects of psychedelics emit are, are reduced, they're attenuated. So we have to work out how best people to deal with people who are on medication when we bring them into our trials. But I think, I mean, I think diagnosis is hugely important in terms of directing psychotherapy, certainly, or sort of behaviour therapy, because, you know, behaviour therapy is directed at the behaviour. You know, you, there's no point in stopping someone switching lights off mm. and on if they've got an addiction. You know, it's not an OCD and addiction, they're different disorders. So uh, it may be we can get more finely tuned. It, it's it's an f- interesting question to what extent our research is going to show there are commonalities some, somewhere in the brain between these, these repetitive disorders like addiction, OCD, and to what extent they're separate. If we might be able to hone in on those commonalities, and then we might be able to even find other treatments to, to work uh, at those junctions where those, the, the disorders overlap, I don't know. Um, so for my final question, I want you to think into the future. For 50 years' time, what does mental health treatment look like? Yeah, so I would, um, I'm going to suggest that you go back 50 years. Okay. I'm going to suggest you go back to a book, that was my favourite book, written by a man called Aldous Huxley. It's called Island, and it is a, a template for a, a world where there is a rational approach to mental health that combines education, combines training, combines psychotherapy, and combines psychedelics. That template was there. It was written in 1964, I think. Uh, we haven't used it. We haven't. We've almost, you know, we've dismissed it. It got lost in the maelstrom of um, of the 60s and the, the the war on drugs. It also got lost because he died the same day as uh, Kennedy, so people didn't really have much time to reflect on his legacy. But um, read that book, read Island, and there is a template. And that's what it should be. We should be teaching people from a very early age about mental health. We should be training them to have strength, to have mental strength, to have skills, to deal with things like bullying, to deal with things like insecurity, using the best psychological processes. And we should also be thinking of how we can use drugs, not just to make us kind of wasted and happy, but also to make us more creative and make us more adaptable and make us more resilient. And uh, hopefully in 50 years' time we'll be doing that. I pity I won't be alive to see it, but (laughs) I hope you will be. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me today. David, if you have been affected by anything spoken about in this podcast, you can speak to the Samaritans on 116 123.